Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in November 2018. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're pleased to welcome in Jose Ardunia. We're going to be talking about his memoir, The Weight of Shadows. Jose Ardunia knows that lofty ideals about America being a land of opportunity often fall short for migrant populations. In The Weight of Shadows, a memoir of immigration and displacement, Jose Ardunia reflects on his life in America, documenting his path to becoming a naturalized citizen and the difficult, often conflicting feelings he has toward the country he has always called home. Exploring the history of U.S. immigration policy beginning in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, he contemplates the consequences of post-9-11 changes and proposals and the effect they have had on his family, friends, and the countless others who risk their lives every year in search of greater opportunity uh, in America. Jose Arduino was born in Cordoba, Veracruz, and immigrated to uh, Chicago when he was two. He's a graduate of the nonfiction writing program at the University of Iowa and active in Latin American solidarity. And his book, The Weight of Shadows, was published in 2016 by Beacon Press. He's an assistant professor of English at University of Nevada at Las Vegas. Jose Arduino, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to uh, be speaking with you today. So a very interesting uh, memoir, Jose Arduino, a mixture of things here. It's memoir, it's also some history, uh, linguistics. There's a lot going uh, on here. Um, some of the memoir, you have um, Spanish phrases, and some of them you don't translate. You just leave them that way. Why Why is that? Right, yeah. So there, there are a lot of um, Spanish phrases, Spanish words uh, that I chose not to translate, and I also, you know, chose not to italicize them, uh, thereby, you know, differentiating them visually on the page. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, I thought about that, and and I thought about it uh, in terms of, like, myself as a writer, you know, putting my words down on a page. I wouldn't differentiate these Spanish words in any way. I wouldn't kind of provide an additional emphasis or anything like that. That's something like an italicized word might imply. I wouldn't um, pause or kind of verbally differentiate those words. Um, and so it, it felt like something that was an artifact that would be imposed on the text that wasn't really coming from me. Um, and so that felt kind of strange. And then, you know, I just, I, uh, I had a student once that, that said to me uh, something that I, I had never, I had always known, but I had never really verbalized. And it was very um, illustrative for me. It was, it was quite meaningful. Um, she said that you know, Spanish has never been a foreign language in the United States. And I thought that was just absolutely, one, true, but also so um, something that we don't uh, think about in that way. Um, it's never been a foreign language here. In fact, you know, your um, uh, state of Utah, I'm calling from Nevada, another similar state, these states used to be part of the Mexican territory uh, in their entirety. So, um, you know, th- those were some of the the reasons and, and thinking behind not translating the Spanish. I think also, you know, a lot of times um, publishers, you know, choose to translate, choose to italicize, thinking that, you know, a reader won't um, do the necessary work to look up a word or something like that. Um, but I think readers do do that. You know, there are, there are um, I remember taking a class, for example, in college, uh, where we learned, it was a linguistics class, where we learned uh, Klingon, and lots of Star Trek fans learned an entire language, a fictional language, because of their, 
you know, adoration of, of Star Trek. So I think if, you know, if people are doing things like that, they can crack open a dictionary or, you know, Google a word or two here and there. Uh, and I, I think they're more than willing to do that if they're interested enough. It does become a barrier, doesn't it? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the, the chapter in the book on, uh, about your friend Octavio. And um, you, there's interesting uh, passage where President Obama comes in the restaurant where you're working. You say you're you're free to go to all sections of the restaurant, in part, I guess, because of your uh, ease with English. Yeah, I think it's uh, not only my ease with English, uh, but just you know a variety of different things. I think um, as a person, I just kind of present in a way that. Um, that kind of, uh, mm, I would say, I, I, I visually carry various class markers that I think also has a lot to do with that. You know, uh, for example, just just a few days ago, I was down at the U.S.-Mexico border, um, you know, participating in various uh, volunteer actions with some groups, and uh, and you know, one thing that really strikes me going through the border patrol checkpoints. Um, I was on my way up, heading north through a border patrol checkpoint that is uh, on a highway going from Aravaca, the town of Aravaca in southern uh, Tucson, in southern Arizona, heading toward Tucson. And every time I've gone through that checkpoint, you know, I'm brown-skinned, I'm fairly dark. I have, uh, you know, uh, I, I appear very clearly not white. I appear very clearly to be, uh, you know, Latino. But I think there are things about the way that I look uh, that carry various kind of class markers for people. And I've never been harassed or stopped there um, because I must appear uh, to not be a migrant uh, in a way that has nothing to do with my skin color necessarily, but something else. And so I think that, um, you know, for example, in that chapter in the book, it's not only my language and the way that I speak that allowed me to move really between those areas, but things like my uh, the tie that I was wearing, the things that I wore as a host at the at that restaurant, um, kind of allowed me to move between these zones in various ways, hmm. and in ways that uh, your friends were not able to. Right, you you talk about right. uh, going up to accounting, going up to the third floor floor where it was. Because you you hadn't received a, a paycheck for a while, you felt comfortable doing that in ways that maybe some of your friends wouldn't have felt comfortable doing. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know I felt very comfortable doing that, and the reason I was able to feel comfortable uh, was not only because of you know the feelings that I had and the confidence that I had, uh, but also just my very real material position in the world. You know, if I lost that job. If they suddenly decided to fire me because I, you know, stomped up there and demanded my money, I would be fine. Um, you know, I would be able to reach out to people. I would be able to, you know, cope with that in a variety of ways economically, where a lot of people who are immigrants who are working in low-wage jobs don't have that ability to cope in that same way. And so they need those jobs in a very urgent way that that is very different than my position. So, you know, something that I tried to kind of capture in the book is how emotions like confidence, for example, in that example, or 
um, you know, just the gall to go up there and, and, and demand my money. It's not only about the immediate emotion, but what structures that emotion, what gives me the ability to act upon that emotion versus someone else who might have a similar feeling, but not be able to act upon it for various reasons. The same chapter, I want to get into the, you know, the, the feeling and the, the experience of someone who's undocumented or, in the, you know, the, the harsher words, illegal alien. Um, your mother leaves you a bunch of messages, <laughs> and, um, and you say it's kind of whispered as if someone is listening, and, and then she tells you to be careful. Yes. And, and there, yeah. there's, some, yeah. there's some history there, right? Why is she telling you to be careful? Yeah, so um, I think, you know, I think a lot of people in this country, not only immigrants, um, but a lot of different kinds of people in this country find themselves at odds with uh, either the majority or a specific institution or a specific set of institutions. And uh, oftentimes that majority, the people that surround you or those institutions are... um, it's an it's an interesting position to be in because often those antagonistic institutions, for example, in my case, you know, immigration authorities, police, things like that, they're not um, outside of the law. They're not uh, a threat that is kind of a, a boogeyman that is outside of the law or very clearly um, a, a morally bad agent. They're actually the agents that are supposed to carry out the law and, you know, we're told that the law is a baseline or, or, or works in the same kind of direction as, as uh, moral thinking or moral imperatives. And so, yeah, you know, my, my mom has always uh, had a, a, I think all mothers do this, you know, all mothers are very, um, you know, they have this, this uh, imperative to tell their children to kind of be careful, eat your food, eat your vegetables and stuff like that. But, um, but you know, mine specifically had a lot of other things to be worried about. Um, as a, you know, as an immigrant, as a person who's darker skinned, there are a lot of uh, things in the world to be careful about. Um, and I think that for, for someone like uh, my mother and my father, um, for that, you know, matter, um, there, there are a lot of additional worries that a parent of someone who's brown skinned and an immigrant has to contend with. Um, and also just on a very uh, more specific level, you know, when I was a, a, a teenager, I was a permanent resident, which for, for people who don't know, uh, that means that I was not a citizen. Uh, I was what's colloquially called a, a green card holder, permanent resident. And that meant that I, that there was a long list of deportable offenses that I lived under uh, that were different than everyone else, that were different than a lot of my peers. Things that, uh, you know, a lot of rambunctious teenagers might do on a daily, semi-daily basis uh, and, um, you know, suffer a, a certain consequence for or not su- suffer a certain consequence for, I would have, if caught, engaging in those very same things that most teenagers do, uh, there was the great potential for me to be deported or any one of those things. So that's a very real um, worry, and it's a very, um, it's, a, it's a thing that uh, kind of hangs over your head at all times, and it, and it uh, is not comfortable and uh, not just. So that, that's where 
I think a lot of my my mother's worry comes from. And in fact, um, you, you write that um, where you lived, at least in the early days, had to do with your situation, uh, right? You couldn't, um, you had to find a place that didn't require signing a lease or running a credit check. Uh, and you tell a you tell an anecdote about an orange. Could you tell us that one place you lived? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think again, it's 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 a situation that affects immigrants uh, and immigrant communities in a specific way, but I think it's also something that is more widely applicable. I mean, if we think about the places where people live or are able to live or are able to make their homes, those things are, you know, determined and structured by a variety of different uh, realities that we live with. Um, And not everyone can live in a quote-unquote nice neighborhood for a variety of reasons. Um, So, you know, my parents and uh, many people who are immigrants have to uh, find places to live where maybe they don't do credit checks, maybe the, you know, you're not required to sign a lease. And oftentimes places like that are, you know, because they operate uh, in, let's say, unconventional ways, you have other unconventional things that go along with it, like floors that slant in a variety of directions, so that when you drop an orange, uh, it rolls around in a variety of different directions until it finds its place at the lowest point, which in my case was in a kind of corner of the kitchen. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's it's an interesting thing to think about in terms of being an immigrant and how that determines not only where you're able to live once you're inside the U.S., but just if you kind of, you know, broaden the scope of that, just the situation of being an immigrant, you know, where one is able to live. Uh, if you're not able to make a livable life in your own country of origin, uh, throughout Latin America, let's say, uh, for a variety of reasons, one has to try to cope with that somehow. And the way that a lot of people do it is through migration. Um, and so it's, it's something that is in that, in that particular chapter, something specific, but I think it's more also broadly applicable and hopefully makes people think about, uh, that situation in a, in a, in a broader way that they might connect to, even if, you know, the reader is not themselves an immigrant. You write that, um, you know, I think it's U.N. Charter, U.N. Rules, people are free to leave, but you point out for, uh, people are free to go, but they're not free to arrive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a you know, fundamental contradiction in the way that we would like to think that the world operates. Um, I mean, I, I think about, you know, for example, the uh, group of people that are making their way toward the U.S. right now uh, through Mexico, you know, they're... The UN Charter says that everyone has the right to leave a country and that that is uh, somehow fundamental to um, fundamental to our thinking about what a liberal democracy is. That's kind of a minimum baseline requirement to be considered a liberal democracy is you have to be able to leave, right, if you choose to. But what does that mean if you have the ability to leave but nowhere to arrive? Um, you know, one could say, oh, well, but there's, you know, refugee status. Well, Look what's happening with refugee status now. Um, you know, President Trump is a trying is attempting right now to create a situation that changes the nature of how uh, people apply for asylum. Trying to bottleneck people, keep them on the Mexican side of the border as they're applying for and making their case for asylum. 
But even beyond that, when we think about refugees, you know, you have to uh, you have to qualify to be a refugee, and there are criteria that you have to meet. Uh, criteria that would not uh, make you a refugee. Uh, those are the reasons that the majority of people are migrating to the U.S., so they won't count as as refugees. But that begs the question: Why not? Um, what about people who live in countries? that have suffered the brunt of U.S. foreign policy, uh, both military and economically, for the entirety of the 20th century? What about people who live in countries that have been made unlivable in large part due to decisions made in halls of power in the United States? Why don't those people qualify to have some sort of relief uh, for that situation? Um, and so that's a... that that. Um, you know that UN charter it's it's there's a fundamental contradiction there where we say that people have the freedom to leave a country but what does that mean it's it's completely incoherent and incomprehensible when there's nowhere to arrive Let's take a break. Um, we are talking with Jose Ordunya. He's an assistant professor of English at uh, University of Nevada Las Vegas. And uh, he is author of the uh, memoir, The Weight of Shadows, and we'll have more with Jose Ordunia following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and Ice House Frozen Custard, offering build-your-own concretes or specialty favorites like Mudslide, Salted Caramel, and Bear Lake Craze. Located next to Firehouse Pizza at 682 South Main in Logan. Dine-in and curbside pickup available. Information at icehousefrozencustard.com. This is Science by the Slice. Using emerging battery technology, USU chemist Leo Liu and his students are developing an integrated design aimed at solar-powered electrification. Increasing demand for electricity in remote rural areas poses challenges, Liu says, but also creates opportunities for development of decentralized electrification systems. Compared with conventional electrical grids based on largely centralized power generation stations, commonly used in developed countries, a centralized approach offers lower capital cost, a smaller footprint, and nimble deployment. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in November 2018. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm very pleased to have with me Jose Ordunia, author of a very interesting memoir. It's called The Weight of Shadows. What uh, what would be your prescription? Um, to, you know, to people are going to come, right? There's there there's things that they're fleeing and uh, economic, I guess, magnet. Those are couple of the main reasons? Yeah, I think, well, I think that's absolutely true, that people are going to come. Um, and that's just a, a given. It doesn't, I don't think it really matters what, uh, I mean, it does matter, but I don't think that people are going to stop coming uh, if you build, you know, Fortress USA and you build some kind of, you know, impenetrable um, steel dome with robot patrolmen. Uh, it, none of that is going to prevent people from coming from trying to come. 
because the underlying reality, the circumstances, the situations are, will remain in place if all you do is, you know, turn turn the United States into a kind of literalized fortress. Um, and so I think, you know, the the my prescription, um, you know, it depends on what we're talking about in terms of, you know, um, time frame. Are we talking about specific kind of things that we could uh, implement or institute? I think one thing is that we need to start talking about immigration in a very different way. I think that we need to um, push this history and really situate the origins of uh, our our immigration situation uh, in different places than the places where they're being positioned now by the mainstream media, which is where a lot of people, especially television media, which is where a lot of people get their kind of frameworks from. And so I think one thing we can do is begin talking about it differently, begin talking about specifics and precise uh, uh, historical events. You know, when I watch the news and I hear about the Northern Triangle, for example, uh, the the news goes back into history to a certain point and situates, you know, things that are happening in terms of violence. People are fleeing violence. People are fleeing gang violence. But there's you know, whenever I watch mainstream uh, news outlets, there's never any attempt to talk about where that violence comes from, what has created the situation in countries in the Northern Triangle where that kind of violence is able to take root and really uh, 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 grow. Um, and so there's no talk about things like, you know, uh, the, the the deposing of democratically elected leaders, the funding of uh, uh, death squads. Uh, there's no talk about uh, the U.S. role in the banana wars at the early part of the century. There's no talk about any of that when we talk about uh, simply, you know, referring to things as, as people fleeing violence or people looking for a better life. So I think we need to talk about those things very concretely. And I think we also... Uh, you know, as as an immigrant community and as immigrant rights activists, um, and maybe rights is even the wrong word. It has to go beyond just formal rights. I, th- I think uh, we need to um, consolidate our movements around some rhetorical points that include these histories and uh, that frame what we're asking for as historical redress. Because people that come here, migrants that come here, immigrants that come here, are not just looking for a better life. They've had to look for a better life here in the U.S. because our countries have been bearing the brunt of U.S. foreign policy for since the beginning, since the beginning of of the the U.S. as a kind of global power. Um, and so that needs to be really concretely included into not only our thinking, but the way that we talk about what we're asking for, the way that we talk about immigration policy. I think we should talk about it really concretely as forms of historical redress uh, when, we're, when we're making policy asks. If you just joined us, we're talking with Jose Ardunia. Uh, he is author of a memoir. It's called The Weight of uh, Shadows. Um, before I get to that uh, interesting title, I want to get into that and some of your family's experience. And you made a very interesting uh, statement about uh, dehumanization. 
that accompanies uh, immigrants' exclusion from society and that your family experienced that. I want to, since we're talking about some of the politics here, I want to have you address what's your argument against uh, the, the main argument I hear proposed uh, uh, in favor of more restrictionist uh, immigration policy is rule of law, that a sovereign nation should have control of its borders, and that that's very important. What's, what's your response? Um, well, I think, you know, I would respond to that in a variety of ways. Um, I think, you know, for example, if, you know, first of all, I, I don't, I don't think that we as a country really believe in that statement that a sovereign nation should have control of its borders. If we believe that, then we wouldn't have, uh, you know, the entirety of the 20th century, uh, U.S. foreign policy throughout the 20th century. I mean, if you want to talk about meddling in other people's affairs, I can't think of a country that has done more uh, meddling in other people's affairs than the United States. If you look at the history of Latin America, countries like Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Mexico, Haiti, uh, and not only throughout Latin America, but then you think about Southeast Asia, the Philippines. I mean, it's it just could go on and on and on and on in terms of you know, meddling, and not only meddling in, like, you know, the, I think the way we talk about meddling now, for example, you know, like, somehow putting some memes on Facebook or, or something like that, I'm talking about meddling with Marines, meddling with uh, supranational economic bodies, uh, corporations that are acting like uh, paramilitary forces, that kind of meddling. So one, I don't think that we as a country believe in the sovereignty of borders. Uh, I think that's just a rhetorical uh, device that we use as a bludgeon in order to push forward our political agenda of brutality and exclusion. Um, I think the rule of law, the idea of the rule of law is also a very similar thing. I mean, I think if we believed in the rule of law, if we believed in the sanctity of the law consistently, a lot of things would be very, very different. Um, I think the, the the sanctity of the law uh, is applied, again, as a very selective, inconsistent bludgeon. Um, and in this case, that rhetoric is being used to, again, brutalize, uh, exclude, uh, deport, uh, and otherwise um, ruin uh, people's lives. I want to talk about this question um, of dehumanization. Um, you, you write about dehumanization that accompanied your family's exclusion from uh, society. Uh, tell me about that. It, 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 examples there and uh, what happens there, and, and what does that do to you? Um, examples of, of dehumanization? Um, I mean, you know, you, we can... We can talk all day about, uh, you know, I think, I think there's something really interesting about the way that we think about dehumanization. Um, I think that oftentimes we think about, uh, you know, when we dehumanize a group, a group of people, we think about it only in terms of individual bias uh, or uh, individual animus on the part of somebody. That's certainly true. I've experienced that kind of racism, that kind of dehumanization in my life. You know, I've dealt with that kind of stuff, you know, little kids, you know, that, that I used to play with would, you know, yell, oh, Border Patrol, Border Patrol. Um, you know, I've, I've been in situations where 
Uh, I'm speaking Spanish to my mother at the grocery store, and somebody tells her to speak English, um, stuff like that. Uh, but I think, you know, we really need to also talk about dehumanization in terms of the the ways that institutions and um, uh, economic imperatives dehumanize people uh, or, or, or preclude people's ability to live as human beings. Um, so just thinking about, you know, the situation that my family lived in as immigrants here in the United States, it was... It was one where, you know, we could only live in certain neighborhoods, and that wasn't patrolled by, uh, you know, anyone. There's no wall there. It's done through other means. It's done through, um, you know, the ways that, that cities structure, the, the way that our society structures cities along uh, economic lines. If you, you know, look at the way that public money is apportioned to different areas of the city, you could, you know, overlay these, these uh, if you were to make a map of that and overlay it, you would see a lot of um, similarity between uh, that kind of segregation and racial segregation. Um, and so I think, you know, it's important to, to talk about dehumanization in a variety of ways, not only the ways that uh, we might be uh, affected by it in terms of individual bias, uh, but also the ways that that we're dehumanized by the way that we set up our society, the way that we um, think that we need to set up our society. Uh, just the situation of being an immigrant is dehumanizing uh, in terms of having to leave your home. Uh, I think there's also, you know, a great myth uh, here that that uh, immigrants are just dying to come to the U.S., that we, you know, that there's some kind of great... Um, animating thing that we really want the American dream and stuff like that. Um, something that has been true for, for me, for people that I know, for people that I love, it is a great ambivalence about living here, a great ambivalence about leaving your home country, because sure, things may be bad, but it's still, you know, your language, your customs, your culture, people who you relate to on a, on a certain respect and, and, and so, um, you know, I think just the need to sever ties with your with with your world, basically, uh, is is that at its essence dehumanizing. Let's take another break. When we come back, we we'll come uh, with our last segment with Jose Ordunia. Uh, we're talking about his uh, memoir from 2016. It's called "The Weight of Shadows." And uh, just mention here before we go to break that Jose Ordunia is uh, on campus for a couple of events today. The main event is tonight at uh, 7.30. Everyone is invited. Jose Ordunia is the fall speaker, the main speaker for the USU Latinx Cultural Center. And those events happened in fall 2018. You're listening to Access Utah on Utah Public Radio. Support for UPR programming comes from our members and Utah Tourism Association. Advocating Utah's Visitor Economy, hosting the annual Live Utah Tourism Conference, August 10th through the 13th in Ogden, featuring breakout sessions, destination discovery events, and more. Registration information available at utahtourismconference.com. Support also comes from the USU Lyric Repertory Company, presenting All the Way, a prequel to 2019's presentation of The Great Society depicting LBJ's first term in office as he works to establish the Civil Rights Act of 1964. 
Performances through July 17th. Details at lyricrep.org. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in November 2018. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our last segment now with Jose Arduña. His memoir is called The Weight of uh, Shadows. Before we get to your naturalization ceremony, um, this, this is very interesting. Um, in the book, you, you're pondering whether or not to ask your mother whether she would make the choice to migrate again if she had it to do it over again. But you decided it was, quote, cruel and stupid question. What do you mean by that? Yeah, um, yeah. I think you know it's 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 um, it was a question that that you know I thought about a lot, um, but I think you know uh, in the end, asking that question to my mother is not only pointless, but um, it 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 would uh, not it would be asked from a place where I didn't really comprehend the sacrifice. Uh, that she and my father made for me in uh, doing what they did and attempting to cope with the situation that they were in uh, by leaving their entire world and trying to make a life uh, somewhere else. Um, and so, you know, I, I, in the end, you know, I, my, my curiosity about the way that she might answer that question was um, not enough to overcome uh, you know, thinking about just how how you know pointless and cruel it would be to to kind of uh, communicate to her that I didn't really truly appreciate what she had done. Mm. And you you write that you um, you feel some guilt, and you, you didn't need you, you didn't want to fully face. I think you wrote that uh, that they did it for for you in large part. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a lot, you know, it's a lot to, it's a lot to bear as a young person. You know, uh, if you think about, you know, for example, going to school and doing a good job at school, that, you know, that might be something that makes someone feel a certain way, uh, you know, a young, uh, you know, U.S. citizen, an American, you know, living in, in the U.S., you would feel whatever you feel about that. But as an immigrant, you know, you, as a young person, as a young immigrant especially, you kind of internalize the logic of the, um, of the like, meritocracy. Um, and you believe in the, in the myth of the meritocracy, that if only, you know, I graduate from college and achieve in this way, then I will move up on the rung in the pecking order of this uh, kind of hunger game society that we live in. And so something like going to school and doing well at school felt like, you know, I was bearing the weight of lifting my family out of poverty, lifting my family out of the situation in which we were living. Um, and that was a lot to bear. Uh, that's a lot to bear as a young person. Um, so that's kind of, you know, where, where mm. that, uh, that comes from. And, and it's a, it's a feeling that, you know, it's a feeling of guilt that kind of never goes away, even if you're able to understand, you know, that uh, logically. Um, it's, it's, and it's, you know, it's kind of guilt. It's, it's responsibility. It's feeling responsible also um, for that sacrifice that your parents made. And so um, 
it's a it's a kind of cluster of all those emotions um, that that come together. I want to talk about, uh, there, there's an interesting chapter in the book. It's all about your naturalization ceremony. So your parents, I think they came on a tourist visa, overstayed that, so undocumented at that point. At a certain point, the family gained uh, permanent resident status, but you pointed out early in the conversations, is still vulnerable there. Uh, so how old were you, and you, you had the chance to become a citizen of, of the United States? So my naturalization ceremony was actually uh, in Iowa, and uh, that was in, uh, I, the exact year escapes me, I think it was 2011, 2012, might have been 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, uh, it was while I was uh, in graduate school uh, at the University of Iowa, so it was, you know, I was well into my 20s um, when, when I was able to uh, naturalize, and you know what's interesting about that is that uh, I I I was able technically to naturalize uh, before that uh, because you know you have to wait five years as a permanent resident as a permanent resident and then you're able to apply for naturalization, um, but but my parents decided against that for a variety of reasons that I have yet to really fully understand, uh, but that I found is also common among many. Uh, immigrants, uh, this kind of ambivalence and resistance to becoming a naturalized U.S. citizen. At least it was in the past. I think now, you know, as immigrant communities are more and more under attack, a lot of more people are realizing, hey, if I can do it, I better do it. Um, but also one of the reasons that I didn't naturalize for such a long time was just the price, the, the amount of money. Um, for my family, it was very hard to put together even, you know, a little bit of money at the end of a month after everything was taken out. And so something that might seem like a little bit of money, like a, like the fee for naturalization, which is several hundred dollars, it's not, you know, it's not li- a little bit. It's, it's, you know, it's difficult for a lot of people and impossible uh, for some people. Um, so I went through that naturalization ceremony not that long ago in 2011 while I was living in Iowa. So, uh, 47 of you, there's a ceremony, um, uh, <laughs> interesting detail, uh, you guys got treated to a uh, barbershop group, um, uh, but you find, as you, you know, you raise your hand, you say, you affirm I will, um, you become a citizen, the lady next to you is crying, you have mixed feelings. Tell me about that. Yeah, you know, I felt a lot of... Um felt a lot of ambivalence about it. Um, I certainly felt a great relief uh, in terms of, you know, for example, not having that list of deportable offenses hanging over my head anymore. Um, I felt a great relief in terms of, you know, being afforded the right to um, vote, for example. Um, but I also felt a lot of other feelings. I mean, I, I one thing that I felt was... Um, you know, I, I kind of had this feeling of, well, what right does uh, this government have to tell me, okay, now you can live here, now you can fully be a full-fledged uh, participant in this society when, you know, this is a this is a country that specific, you know, I was born in Mexico, so specifically in terms of of my country, this is a country that, you know, in 1848, you know, invaded Mexico and took 
half of its landmass, including you know the entire state of California, Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah, Wyoming. Uh, one year before, for example, the gold rush, where billions and billions of dollars of of gold were um, extracted from the earth um, and continued to extract oil and minerals for for you know a great number of decades uh, to such an extent to such an extreme extent that by like 1911 uh, 46% of the total estimated wealth in Mexico was US owned um and 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 you know if we keep going forward from that one of the main drivers of uh the Mexican revolution happening or needing to happen was the extreme uh, inequality that was present in Mexico because of those relaxed economic barriers that allowed the U.S. to own 46% of Mexico's wealth uh, through various forms of direct investment and and uh, and stuff like that. Um, and you know, and you fast forward to something like the NAFTA period, and you have another very similar period where a relaxed economic. Uh, you know, the U.S. advocates and pushes for relaxed economic barriers so that it, again, can uh, dominate uh, the economy of another country, thereby not really demonstrably not believing in the sovereignty of other nations' borders. Um, and so those were things that I, you know, that's history that I'm familiar with and that I know. And so sitting, you know, in this room and having this, you know, group of very nice older gentlemen singing uh barbershop songs while I'm being told by a government that's done this to my country that now I can, you know, be happy about being a full-fledged uh, participant in this society. It, it, it didn't exactly, um, didn't exactly feel uncomplicated because of uh, uh, all of those reasons. And so, you know, I found myself feeling a deep ambivalence about it, all of it. Um, and also, you know, just thinking about all of the people that are not able to experience that sort of relief. Um, and, and it makes one think about why. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and when you really think, uh, it's a combination of really arbitrary things that shouldn't be, uh, but it's also, uh, it also comes down to and has a lot to do with poverty. Um, you know, people who immigrate to this country uh, a lot of times are are leaving situations of poverty and instability. Uh, and we're talking about not only a kind of racialized exclusion and a kind of uh, xenophobia, but also very concretely uh, a form of class oppression. Uh, and that's where I want to go next, and, and uh, this will have to be the final topic. We're running out of time, but um, I, I want to uh, jump in here, uh, introduce this last topic, which you have hinted at here, uh, by reading a paragraph from this chapter that we've been uh, talking about. So the the end of uh, of the previous chapter, you've, you're at this ceremony, and you've just become a naturalized citizen. You say, it isn't lost on me that people die in pursuit of this condition I've just entered. In this paragraph, I want to read the official customs and border protections uh, number of migrants uh, lives lost in Southwest during fiscal year 2010 is 365. Uh, This number is almost certainly too low. The number of South and Central American migrants killed in their transit through Mexico on their way here is unknown. Migrant massacres numbering close to 100 are not uncommon. 
falling off the side of La Bestia, a freight train used for transport through Mexico and never being identified, is not uncommon. About 11,000 South and Central American migrants were kidnapped in a six-month period last year. Globally, thousands of people perished making this wager, attempting to make their way to the global north. They die in the Sahara, along the U.S.-Mexico border, in Mexico, in the Mediterranean, in Australian waters, around the Horn of Africa, in the Bay of Bengal, in the Caribbean. They're the poorest, those who cannot afford to make their way into a country on a tourist visa or on an airplane. When you come from indigenous populations, most are dark-skinned. I want to have you, as we end here, Jose Arduña, tell me about, you've written about this, um, I think you've done this more than once, going down to Arizona and um, standing vigil. Um, essentially what, what you and the others in the group are doing is affirming the personhood of people who have died out there in the desert. Uh, I was very touched by it, by this. I wonder if you tell me about this. Yeah, so um yeah, I've uh you know, I've I've uh, over the years I've uh, participated in um you know, various uh different um activities with with uh groups uh that mostly in Arizona. Um and you know, some of the the things that these groups do uh are uh leave gallons of water in uh the Sonoran Desert, uh, which is in southern Arizona and stretches into Mexico. And that was a major migrant corridor before it shifted um, to be primarily now, I guess, in Texas, uh, in the Rio Grande sort of valley area. Uh, But it used to be around 2012 and stuff, uh, those years, it used to be in southern Arizona. And so uh, these groups leave uh, gallons of water for people uh, that should not be dying of thirst in the desert, um, and I've done that. Um, and some other groups also do some uh, documenting of um, abuse in short-term border patrol custody, uh, documentation of uh, abuse that happens throughout the process of being um, kind of booked and going through uh, the process of, of uh, removal. And so it is, you know, it is about affirming people's personhood. It's also just kind of literally about trying to save some people's lives. You know, that stretch of desert is immense and uh, in completely inhospitable. And people were forced to go through those areas by design. Um, there were several border policies that uh, f- uh, that funneled people into the most inhospitable areas of southern Arizona uh, because it was supposed to be, quote-unquote, deterrence. Um, and that, I mean, really what that policy of deterrence amounts to is something like, you know, signaling to other immigrants via the death of immigrants in the desert uh, to you know, not try to cross or something like that. I mean, it's basically like what some cartels do with corpse messaging. But so it's about firming people's personhood. It's also about just quite literally trying to save some lives. And so, yeah, I was very glad to be able to participate in in that. This particular experience you uh, wrote about here, um, I'm seeing this Powell's Books uh, blog, um, apparently the, the group, um, had white crosses. You would, uh, when it came your turn, you'd hold it up 
There'd be a name on there. You'd hold it up in solidarity with the person who had died. Yours, you turned it over, and it read Desconocido y Niño, uh, unknown and child. That's <laughs> That had to be impactful for you. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's um, being confronted with uh, something like that is not easy. Um, and, you know, the, the something like that, you know, is not not only the knowledge of someone having died in the desert, uh, but someone with a child um, and thinking about how that's a not uncommon thing that happens in our country here, that someone with a child, uh, maybe a woman with a child, sometimes pregnant women, uh, have to make their way on foot through some of the most inhospitable terrain that we have in this country. And they have to do that uh, because of policy. Um, And not only was that cross that I was holding indicative of someone having died, uh, but there was no name. Uh, it simply said unknown uh, with child. And that complete rendering of someone, the, or, or that, that kind of uh, attempt to render someone uh, as no one, um, robbing them of, the person that they once were, robbing them of an identity, uh, reducing them to the word unknown on a white cross. I mean, that is that is such brutal political violence that it's it's difficult when you're confronted with that. Uh, and I, you know, I would hope that more people uh, would be confronted with that because it's it's what's happening, uh, and it's what's happening with our tax dollars under our watch, and it's something that requires our action uh, to stop. We'll end the conversation there. We're out of time. Um, conversation with Jose Ordunia. Uh, he is the author of a, a interesting memoir, impactful memoir. It's called The Weight of Shadows. And uh, Jose Ordunia is a professor of English, uh, assistant professor of English at UNLV. The book is out, The Weight of Shadows, and available to you. Jose Ardunia, thank you so much. Appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much. I appreciate your thoughtful questions and for uh, having me on. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Like most Utah communities in the early 20th century, Salt Lake City's Sugar House neighborhood lacked a public swimming pool. What's a kid to do on a scorching summer day? Well, use the pond on the grounds of the nearby Utah State Prison, of course. Learn more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Utah summers are hot. Taking a dip in a cool pool on a hot day is a popular pastime for many Utahns, but in the 1920s, public swimming pools were hard to come by. Without access to a pool, kids in Sugar House would cool off during baking summer afternoons in the Penn Pond, located on the grounds of the Utah State Penitentiary. 
The unsupervised pen pond presented a few challenges for the swimming children, including jagged rocks, rusty tin cans, broken glass, slimy mud, worms, and water spiders. In addition to the less than ideal aquatic environment, swimming suits were expensive, so many kids simply went without. Some chose to skinny dip, while others created makeshift swimsuits by stretching and pinning their knitted sleeveless undershirts. Desperate for relief from the heat, neighborhood boys skinny dipped in the pen pond much to the envy of local girls. Two of these girls, Helen Carter and her friend Verla, concocted a plan to join the fun after noticing that the boys usually left the pond by late afternoon. The girls were nervous during their first evening visits to the pond, looking around and jumping at every sound, but they loved the cool water and soon learned how to doggy paddle. It wasn't until Helen's older brother encouraged her to visit the pond with him that she gained confidence in her regular swims. The kids were wary of disapproving parents, and eventually the girls did get caught by an upset father, which ended their skinny dipping in the pond. Luckily, the Sugar House Public Swimming Pool opened soon after, providing a safer, supervised environment and cleaner water. Swimming gained popularity, and by the 1930s, six of Salt Lake City's playgrounds boasted public pools. Capitalizing on the fervor, the Red Cross offered free swimming lessons at each of the city's pools. Their learn-to-swim drive encouraged water safety, and hundreds of kids signed up for instruction. Today, childhood swimming lessons are common, and public pools are found in neighborhoods throughout the state. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by Kim Poole, co-author of No Ordinary Life, an autobiography of Helen Marr Carter Monson. Find sources and past episodes at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and UPR.org. Everybody wants to be